0: All right, welcome to the Championship Saturday edition of the College 12 Pack. I am your host, Patrick Con, the uh, managing editor of College Sports Wire, as well as the senior editor of the College Wires. With me, as always, Tyler Natuno of LSU Tigers Wire. Uh, and we are going to dive right into this one, Tyler. We got to- We got a lot to talk about. We got the game. We have the Iron Bowl. Coaches fired, coaches hired, coaches retained. Uh, Texas A&M fumbling the bag, so to speak. I don't know. We'll get into all that. But, child let's, let's kick this off. Segment one, right off the bat, we're talking the game. Michigan versus Ohio State, closer than it's been in the last couple of years. We didn't see Michigan run away with it in the fourth quarter like we did last year. It gave us everything, but also told us kind of what we expected, that Kyle McCord's is not the guy, I, I think, yet. Thomas McCord wasn't the guy yet to really, you know, give Ohio State this win, but not only that, just uh, showed that J.J. McCarthy was able to do what he needed to do, um, and they were able to do a lot. Um, and uh, at this point, Michigan does what they've done the last three years. Could it be their last hurrah with Jim Harbaugh? We'll find out, but when, when you watch that game, uh, did you have the feeling that there was no other way it was going to end other than uh, Ohio State with a ball, just not able to finish finish a drive to win this one?
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly, you know, the way the way it seemed like it was trending. You know, I mean, I, I picked Ohio State to win this game, um, and obviously they didn't. I, I did think, though, it kind of played out in a way that, you know, was was conducive to Ohio State winning the game. I thought they moved the ball in this game – better than than I think a lot of people expect them to you know they they I mean how they outgained Michigan the issue is I mean like you said Kyle McCord is not quite there there's a couple costly interceptions um and look to me the story of this game was was the the comparative aggressiveness between Sharon Moore and Ryan Day I mean so Michigan goes three of three on fourth downs in this game that really pays off for them Ohio State misses a couple opportunities where they could have gone for it and been aggressive. And I mean, I, I literally, I was watching this game on Saturday with my family. And on that first, early in the game, I think it was their second drive, they had a fourth and one from their own 46. And I said out loud, I said, Ryan Day, if you are serious about winning this game, you will go for it here. And they didn't. They punted. And that was kind of the, the, the mindset that I, I feel like was, you know, plagued Ohio State the whole game. I really didn't understand it. You know, for a guy whose season it's really a one game season for this team, they didn't play like it in this game. And that was really what concerned me the most, I think, about Ryan Day was, you know, given how important this game was to his perception, it didn't seem like he was sort of taking it that seriously. But, I mean, you know, Michigan didn't pull away and blow them out like they have in past years. And I do worry a little bit about this Michigan offense. I still don't think J.J. McCarthy is where he needs to be. And I mean, if this Michigan team has to run up against Georgia or Oregon, I don't, I don't have much confidence at all they're going to win that game. So I really worry about this Michigan offense uh, heading into the postseason.
0: Yeah, it's it's tough. The the one the great thing about when when you look at at Michigan and in this offseason going into the playoff, they're going up against a, a team that is, um, I I don't know what the term I would use, just offense optional. Uh, at, at iowa so you know they're going to have that opportunity but yeah i think you're right when you look at it and the fact that they're not willing to go for it on poor downs uh specifically in, in that situation where um you're playing not to lose but at the same time that, that that's not a way that's conducive to win and and it's coming from two teams that aren't really known for going for it but uh more obviously was more aggressive uh yeah, that was that was really, I think, when you, when you boil down to one particular play or one area, I think it was the fourth down conversions where you really looked at Michigan and thought that they were going to win this football game. And then we had the Iron Bowl, which, you know, that game was interesting. I, I felt like this was Auburn's chance to really spoil it. I thought they had the opportunity. Uh, but then the wrong number zero for Auburn goes, goes out there to return the punt, Coy Moore. Uh I, I really can't understand that. Like, wh- why would you have a different guy out there? Muffs the punt. And obviously, uh, Isaiah Bond with that touchdown there at the, in the in the corner of the end zone at the very end to win that game, uh, to give them, their, I believe, their fourth straight win. Uh, and, and twice in Auburn, miscues over the last three games, last four years in Auburn, are the reasons why they lose. Not because, uh, you know, not because Alabama just ran away with it. It was more the fact that, that Auburn just mental errors cost them this football game. And that's why Alabama is still alive in the uh, CFP hunt.
1: Yeah. You know, this game always gets weird when it's in Auburn. Uh, something about that stadium and this rivalry just makes craziness happen. Um, and Auburn almost had one of those games this weekend. You know, <laughs> this was a tough one to watch with my, with my Auburn alum mom. She was not, she was not having the best time, but I mean, just that end game sequence, uh, was one of the most baffling things I've ever seen um, watching football. I, I just can't believe, still can't believe um, how that happened. I mean, fourth and 31, you rush like two against uh, Jalen Milroe. Like, what are you doing? I mean, that I, I just, uh, everything about that play, it was like watching a train crash in slow motion. Um, it, it was horrible. And, and, and before that too, you know, the muff punt that ultimately kind of sets it all up. Hugh Freeze said after the game, like he didn't know, like the guy that was back there and ultimately muffed it. wasn't the guy that was supposed to be back there. Like there was some sort of miscommunication between uh freeze and special teams coordinator, like just all sorts of issues. And I mean, it just really, I think orchestrates, I think that game to me was, was such a like telling game for how this year one has gone for Hugh freeze at Auburn because six and six is like not a bad season by any stretch when you consider what the situation was when he got here. But it's hard not to feel like, you know, lose at home, get blown out by New Mexico State, have the opportunity to get a huge win against Alabama. Both of those go awry. And, you know, you've had quarterback issues. It kind of just to me it's just a season of what ifs. You know, I feel like not a bad year one, but I think this team had potential to do more. So I don't, it's an interesting dynamic. I'm not really sure how to look at Hugh Freeze going into 2024
0: they obviously going to need to upgrade their quarterback situation but the fact that he their quarterback went 5 and 16 throwing the football in this game and they only lose by 3 is amazing to me uh 93 total passing yards in this game 244 rushing uh, if you look at their drives where they scored touchdowns it was predominantly uh running the football they had some big plays uh but we'll, we'll kind of see what Alabama looks like going into Saturday against Georgia as they play for the SEC title that's going to be a very interesting game and a lot of people are going to be interested in this because if, if Alabama wins this game. What does that do for the national championship picture? And we'll get more into that uh, on Wednesday when we do our, our second half of our, our college 12 pack. Uh, but let's talk about the coaches that were fired and there's a laundry list um, and we could go through each one. Uh, but really the one, obviously the big one we knew about what was Jimbo uh, there. What coaching firing that happened shocked you the most and and what seemed to be the one that we all saw coming um it was just a matter of the timing of it and for me i'm gonna start off with dana holgerson to me was the one that everybody saw coming Uh, i felt like this was one that when you look at how they played this year coming into the year eight and five this year just wasn't up to snuff and and really when you look at some of their games offensively they just couldn't keep up with some of the teams like uh like the Texas Techs, when they played that game and get blown out. They obviously beat West Virginia, which was interesting uh, because of the dynamic with Holgerson there. But down the stretch, it just felt like this was the only way it was going to end for Dana Holgerson, considering how his team played down the stretch.
1: Yeah, you know, we've talked a lot about Dana. I I feel like it's all pretty clear at this point, kind of self-evident, how this all has, has played out, you know not the kind of year they needed to have, um, you know, no one in the the new big 12 members really hit the mark this season, but Houston really did not at all, you know, had some really kind of just hard, hard to understand losses in there. And this Saturday was one of them, you know, a winnable game against UCF. You're not particularly competitive against another big 12 newcomer who, by the way, became the only one that's bowl eligible um, with a win this weekend. So You know, I think Houston to me doesn't really compare very favorably to to where the rest of these newcomers are at, except for maybe Cincinnati, who's kind of in a similar boat. Um, But just when you look at what the resources this program has, the potential makes a lot of sense. You know, we'll get into Jeff Trailer did not get hired by the uh, the big time power in the state of Texas that's currently looking for a coach, so potentially something to follow there. We'll see where that goes. But yeah, I mean, I think Houston could be doing better than they are. I think they could. you know, have a better face to lead them into this new era in the big 12. Um, So that, that to me, I would agree with that was the one that made the most sense. Another, I would throw in there just from the G five ranks is Danny Gonzalez over at New Mexico. Um, You know, hadn't really, you know, kind of surprising he got this year needed a big leap. They went like five and seven um, wasn't really enough. Name to watch there I've heard is potentially Gary Patterson, which could be interesting to watch. Uh, seems like he might want out of retirement. So we'll see how that one goes. Um, but yeah, for me, I would say the one that was the most surprising was out of the Big Ten. And it was Tom Allen at Indiana. You know, I don't think there was any surprise in the sense that, you know, where this team was at from a football perspective right now. I mean, they're, it's pretty bleak. It's It's been bleak since really the COVID season. Um But, you know, they they paid 20 something million dollars to get rid of this guy. You know, this is Indiana football. You know, they'll have that kind of money spent on a basketball coach, on a football coach. You don't necessarily expect it. So to me, I was, you know, kind of this this was going to tell me what they did with Tom Allen was going to tell me how serious Indiana is about, you know, competing in football in the new Big Ten. I mean, this is a pretty interesting step to me. I think I'm very I'm very curious to see what kind of coach they can get and how aggressive they are in the market.
0: Yeah, I, I would have to say that was probably the surprising one as well for me was Tom Allen because when you look at that buyout 20.8 for a program that's really not been um, a competitive one in recent years, obviously, ever since I, – because I feel like Michael Penix Jr. got him that deal, and then as soon as he left, it all fell apart for him. Uh, we saw what, what they looked like. They, it just wasn't competitive. Uh, so that for me – I, I will say I – w- I will join you in that one. Um, but if I have to be contrarian, maybe Dino Babers, uh, not exactly surprising. Uh, but when you look at that Syracuse program and where they are as far as where they're lacking in NIL, uh, in facilities, it's a little bit harder for you to draw some of those bigger names to, to that school. Uh, so I would say that just for contrarian – but let's talk about the retention. This one was wild to me. And if there's one re- retention that I absolutely do not understand and I need somebody to explain this to me, how do you bring Sam Pittman back? After what you saw down the stretch, how do you keep Sam Pittman? Usually when you're going into the offseason, there's some excitement where you know, there's something that you can do. A hire is to be made, whether it be coordinator, uh, a head coach, but when I look at this Arkansas program and where they were in 2021, I mean, this looks like a shell of their former selves. Because if you remember the team that smacked Texas around, this team doesn't look anything like that at all. I mean, they go from 9-4 to 7-6, went to triple overtime against Kansas in the Liberty Ball to this year going 4-8. and eight. And in the game against Missouri, uh, didn't even look like they belonged on the same football field.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I like – a little bit surprising that Sam Pittman is still around. You know, I, mean, I think kind of a season where, you know, you go into a year that everyone's like, this is a really pivotal year for Sam Pittman. He really needs to, you know, needs to get them back on track. And they go four and eight. Like, you, you know, you would think logically that that's probably about all she wrote. I just, that was never really what it sounded like to me. It kind of sounded like they really like Sam Pittman and we're going to, so we're going to, you know, kind of willing to stick it out. So I'm not really surprised at the retention because that just is kind of what it sounded like. They were, you know, the kind of the direction they were leaning in. I mean, am I surprised in the sense that do I think it's the best football decision? Uh, Probably not. I mean, I, I understand, you know, why they like Sam Pittman. I think he came in uh, very quickly and raised the floor after, You know, arguably one of the most disastrous hires in SEC history and Chad Morris, you know, he really turned the tables pretty quickly. I just don't know how you can feel good about the the trajectory this program is on with Oklahoma and Texas coming into the league with Texas A&M, you know, retooling. We'll see how that one goes. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But, you know, I I think. I just question what this team is doing, you know, I mean, obviously they made the OC hire this offseason when they lost Kendall Bryles and Dan, Enos didn't really work out, got fired midway through the season. Uh, You know, Kenny Guyton showed some stuff in the Florida game, didn't really anything after, so I kind of doubt he's going to keep that job. So, you know, they're going to give Sam Pittman the chance to go in and make an OC hire. I just, we'll see. I, I I don't really see a way. I, this might end with something of a mutual parting of ways next season. I, I don't know. But I, I don't really see a way he's going to significantly get this back on track.
0: Well, here's here's for me is Arkansas really put themselves in a bad situation when the athletic director Hunter Juracek goes in the locker room after they beat FIU announced that they're going to keep him, and and apparently the team was excited uh, that they're going to keep him. But they certainly didn't play like it against Missouri. And, I, you know, the game for me that really told me that he probably shouldn't be back is losing 48-10 to to an Auburn team that just hasn't been good this year. Don't get me wrong. Six and six is a good year for them. But if you really look at that Auburn team about the way they operate and how poor they've looked at throwing the football, which is kind of, you know, Hugh Freeze's – Calling card, so to speak. If you look at some of those teams, at Liberty, uh, I don't, I don't see how you lose forty eight to ten in that game. And and a truth be told, they shouldn't, they shouldn't have won the game against Florida either, uh, based on the trajectory of those programs. But yeah, losing to Alabama, we expect the Mississippi State game was awful. The Auburn game, the Missouri game, for me, is I look at it and, and I just don't understand it. And if we're talking about retentions, we don't understand there's Dave Aranda. Uh, if you look at where he was – and I'll just talk about the defense. In the 2021 when when Baylor won the Big 12 title over Oklahoma State, they had the number two scoring defense uh, in the conference. 2022, they dipped. It was the number – I believe it was number four, or number five scoring defense where they were allowing more than 20 points a game. If you go from 2021 to where they were this year where they were dead last in the Big 12 in scoring defense, they doubled that number. And if your calling card is that side of the football and you've gotten that progressively worse on that side of the ball, it makes me question whether you should be running the football program. And once again, you got these athletic directors who were throwing these contracts after one good year. And then it almost feels like immediately looks stupid two years later.
1: Yeah. You know, this one's a little bit easier to understand. Um, And if you're watching, if you're listening to the audio only, I just did the money signal. Um, You know, he's got a huge buyout here. So not really surprised that they're giving this one another go. But yeah, I mean, it's very discouraging. I mean, this is a guy who was getting talked about. I mean, I think it's important to contextualize that the reason Baylor gave him that extension is because his name was popping up, you know, at USC, at Florida, at LSU. So... You know, this was a guy who was getting legit interest from some big time jobs after just two years at Baylor. But the, the way this has fallen off in the last two seasons is is really hard to believe. Um, and, and I don't know if there's a coach whose perception has shifted um, in these last two years more than Dave Aranda. I mean, I think there was a time where this guy, you know, he's sort of a, a different kind of guy character wise. And he's, he's very, uh, you know, kind of kind of more mild mannered, very like intellectual in the way he talks um, you know, not not normally the, the stereotype of, of a football coach, especially a defensive football coach. Um, and I think people, you know, the, the, the sort of consensus opinion on Dave Aranda for a while was this is one of the smartest coaches in the entire business. Uh, this has really gotten bad, though. And, and like you said, I mean, the defense is horrible. They pretty much already said, I mean, Mac Rhodes, the, the um, athletic director at Baylor, who's who's come out and said that Aranda's sticking around. He said way earlier in the season that they were on the record that they were going to be making offensive staff changes. So you can expect that probably some defensive staff changes too. you know, they lost their D.C. to Auburn after last season. Um, You know, I think a lot of questions coming in, you know, a really bad season and we're not competitive at all in the Big 12. I mean, he needs a massive turnaround, I think, to stick around in this job um, after 2024.
0: I mean, the way that they finished out the season, losing six of their last seven games, their only win was a three-point win against Cincinnati, who's awful this year. Uh, We saw what Cincinnati was down the the stretch. Really couldn't beat anybody. Uh, Losing to – I mean, if you look at every game that they lost outside of the three-point loss to West Virginia and the one-point overtime loss to Houston, they got blown out in pretty much every game. Uh, giving up 42 points to TCU is not who has not looked good at all this year. Um, it, it was they are a far cry from where they were a year ago, um, which is not surprising considering all that they lost. It, it just it was just bad all the way around, and, and yeah, I think you're right. They're going to have to make wholesale changes on both sides of the ball because as bad as their defenses looked this year, their offense wasn't any better, and 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 you would you would think that they would have been better on on one side of the ball, but really and we kind of, I guess we kind of felt like we knew this was going to be bad when they lost to Texas state to start out the year and beat an LIU team 30 to seven. Uh, from there, it just, it felt like it was a downward spiral. And another reason why going into next year, you know, Pittman and Aranda, both, they're going to be under a lot of hot water, but they're not the only head coaches, uh, that are the hot water, so to speak, going into next year. And, uh, Tyler, I think I think you're going to be looking at your alma mater uh, as far as who's the coach that's going to be under the most heat heading into 2024.
1: Yeah, I did this a little bit a couple weeks ago after the Arkansas loss, but now it's all is in the book. Season's over, five and seven, miss a bowl in year two. So let's have the Billy Napier conversation. So look, he's not getting fired. It hasn't happened, and it's not going to this season. Um, he's sticking around. That's definitely going to happen. Uh, but the confidence level right now is extremely low. I mean, he came in and and to his credit, he preached patience. You know, he said, this is a long-term rebuild. This is going to take some time and that's fine, but you have to show signs of progress along the way. And this team really didn't, Uh, you know, like I said, went five and seven and the year losing five straight games after a five and two start. And the, the back half of the schedule was brutal. So you knew at five and two, it was going to be a battle to get to a bowl game. There was no doubt about that, but you lose five games in a row, including, you know, a game in overtime against an Arkansas team that you had no business losing to, you know, you have an opportunity, a huge opportunity to beat Missouri. You could have beaten that Florida state team, you know, with tape Rodemaker, that offense was still figuring it themselves out. They didn't really know what they were doing. Um, and I think with Graham Mertz, maybe that game plays out a little bit differently, but look, man, that's part of the reality. Um, you got to deal with that. You know, depth issues are part of it. And this team has just not been there. You know, the defense was horrifically bad this season. Um, the offense took steps in the right direction, um, you know, which was encouraging. I still think he probably needs an offensive coordinator because the fact of the matter is this team is is just a nightmare operationally and procedurally. I mean, the, they can't get the plays in on time. They have 12 men on the field all the time, routinely. They have special teams gas. you know, personnel problems. It, it's just... It, baffling issues and and i think it's hard to ignore when billy napier is calling the plays on offense you know that's distracting from overall you know organizational things that he needs to be doing and i think you know it's really hard to have any confidence when this team really hasn't shown any proof of concept whatsoever in two years i mean the only proof of concept is on the recruiting trail where they currently have a top five class have a five-star quarterback committed in dj lagway have some good dbs committed so help is on the way um, you know this roster is going to be more talented next year, assuming this class stays together. You know they had a couple of decommitments a couple of weeks ago. Have sort of been able to, to to plug those you know the leaks since then. Hasn't really had any any other major losses. Uh, but I mean, you got to close out this class. You got to go be very aggressive in the transfer portal because you've got a lot of roster holes that that are really going to be stark again next year if you don't address them this offseason. And you can't rely on true freshmen to fix that, as we learned this year. Um, And the schedule next season is absolutely brutal. And eight and four looks like the ceiling. And I don't think he sticks around if he does worse than that. So, yeah, man. I mean, if you're talking hottest seat in the country in in 2024, he's up there because he needs to do a lot to prove he deserves to stick around in this job. And it's going to be really, really hard to do that.
0: You know, I can't can't argue with any of that. Uh, I think you make some valid points. Other names might consider. Miami's Mario Cristobal, although he's probably not as hot as water because he has uh, seven wins this year, but I'm going to go with Pat Narduzzi. Uh, he's a guy that I thought should have been in trouble this year coming off a three and nine season. It just doesn't, it didn't look good at all. I mean, outside of their upset win over Louisville on October 14th. And then obviously they got another win against Boston college, but outside of that, this team just looked lost and, It seemed like Pat Narduzzi was more interested in calling out people who were getting people out of the transport portal before they even entered. You know, he wanted to call out USC for Jordan Addison. Uh, It it felt like he wanted more focus there, and I think he needs to really focus on getting his team uh, ready to play football. And for me, when I look at some of these coaches who are going to be on the hot seat – outside of the two that we've already mentioned, and then you obviously saying Napier is going to need to step it up. Uh, For me, it's Pat Narduzzi.
1: Yeah, you know, Mario, disappointing year for Miami, I would say. I think especially offensively, I think Tyler Van Dyke's development has not gone the way that people expected it would after the way he played early on in his career. But look, I mean, it's a step in the right direction. It's progress. The recruiting's not quite where it needs to be right now, and he's going to go into next year, I think, with a lot to prove. But I'm not sure if there's a lot of pressure there right now. Um, but Pat Narduzzi, man, like, yeah, I don't know where the pressure's at here to be quite honest with you. I think there's probably an element of Pitt being afraid of what, you know, their football reality looks like without, without Pat Narduzzi, because he's been a stabilizing force. He's raised the floor pretty significantly for Pittsburgh, especially in the ACC. Uh, so I think that, you know, I can understand why they're sticking around with him, but man, this was an awful season and they've trended really down since the year where they, you know, kind of broke through and win the ACC with Kenny Pickett. Um, you know, obviously fire their offensive coordinator, Frank Signetti, he's gone. I think they made a couple other staff changes too. I might be wrong about that, but, um, point being they're uh, point being they uh, you know, in a tough spot. And I think I don't really have a lot of confidence in him, you know, with some of the losses they've taken this season, other than the inexplicable win over Louisville, that was pretty cool. Don't really know how they pulled that one off, you know, and then his comments, you know, kind of bashing the current transfers he had. I, I think this is a situation that is not great heading into 2024. I agree with you.
0: It is not. It is not. But let's talk about some positive going into 2024. As the regular season has ended, we're getting ready for championship Saturday with the 10 different conference championship games. But let's talk about the the teams that made changes. David Braun has been announced as the head coach. They took the interim tag off. After winning six games and getting them bowl eligible, I don't think you could have gone in any other direction but to make this man your head coach for Northwestern. Michigan State also made a move. They went and hired Jonathan Smith. Now, this was interesting because they brought the fact that he left his alma mater where he was actually doing well uh, for the Michigan State job, I think speaks to the volatility surrounding Oregon State and the lack of a conference future. They don't, we really don't know how it's going to play out. And I think ultimately that is why Jonathan Smith took the job there at uh, Michigan State. And I also think the Spartans just made a very good hire. so far, I would say this is probably the best hire of any of them that's been made, um, and we'll see as it goes. But uh, when when you look at the Jonathan Smith hire, Tyler, this felt like a guy who will change that culture there at Michigan State. Uh, he's got some good building blocks, and I think with the transfer portal um, and you know with the resources available in East Lansing, I, I really do think that he can make a serious impact in year one.
1: Yeah, 100%. Um, And real quick, I'm just going to hit on David Braun for a second. I just think it's hilarious. You know, we'll see how good of a coach this guy really is in the long term. But I think it's hilarious that, you know, had none of that happened with Pat, uh, with Pat Narduzzi, with uh, Pat Fitzgerald, and had he stuck around, I think everyone would have been fine and expected them to go like three and nine this year. And there would have been no questions about his aptitude moving forward. Uh, And then David Braun goes seven and five, much, much to consider there. But yeah, Jonathan Smith, look, I think this is a fantastic hire. I mean, I think the way he got you know, Oregon state to overachieve the talent he was able to develop there on both sides of the ball, uh, really encouraging. I think they're getting back to the, the kind of identity you need to have at Michigan state when you're just not going to quite recruit at the level that the best programs in the big 10 are, especially now uh, with the new teams that are coming in. So, I mean, yeah, I think this was an absolute slam dunk hire for Michigan state. I think for Jonathan Smith, obviously it makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, it's tough leaving his alma mater, kind of leaving them in the lurch, to be honest with you, because, you know, Oregon state's future is so murky right now, but it's hard to blame him for taking that kind of lifeline, you know, to the big 10, that kind of money, a program that's, you know, despite what's happened recently, a a program that has historically been, you know, fairly stable. Um, So I think there's a lot of appeals there and I really, I can understand it. And I think for Michigan state, fantastic hire. And I just, this whole, I mean, obviously a, a tough, you know, you know, ugly situation, but it really couldn't have worked out any better for them to get rid of Mel Tucker without having to pay that buyout. And you end up with a a, a talent developer like Jonathan Smith. I mean, perfect situation.
0: Yeah. Then there's Jeff Levy who was hired at Mississippi state and, you know, people have their opinions about Jeff Levy. Uh, I know we do as well. I'm not a huge fan of him Uh, dating back to, to his time at Baylor and the little stunt that he pulled uh, earlier this year when he brought his father-in-law onto the field, Uh, decked out in Oklahoma gear, which I thought was kind of funny. But he's taking over a Mississippi State program, which I think is kind of a tough spot considering who they have coming into the SEC, no more divisions. So it's going to be a tough one for him. And it's really funny considering how Oklahoma fans were very excited to hear that Jeff Levy was leaving Oklahoma because they didn't like him as an offensive coordinator, even though he did – he did run the number three scoring offense in the country at 43.2 points per game. Uh, but I digress. It's it's really funny to see the opposite ends. Oklahoma fans couldn't be happier. Um, and Jeff Levy hiring, you would think that he's the second coming.
1: Yeah, I mean, literally, like if you didn't see the reception Jeff Levy got in Starkville last night, um, I mean, it was it was like a war hero returning from the front. I mean, it was crazy. They was like lifting him and the athletic director up on their shoulders, like a massive crowd. There were pyrotechnics and cowbells. It was crazy. Look, I, I've made my thoughts on Jeff Levy having jobs in college coaching pretty clear. I'm not going to rehash that. I've already had that uh, rant on the podcast before. I mean, so, so that aspect aside, I mean, it makes sense, you know, a guy that has – connections, first of all, to the state of Mississippi, you know, came from Ole Miss where he was previously the offensive coordinator, Um, has connections with, uh, you know, Mississippi State's athletic director in particular. Um, You know, he's a Norman, Oklahoma native, long time uh, in the athletic department at Oklahoma. So obviously had a prior relationship with Jeff Levy. I mean, this makes sense. I think after the failures of the Zach Arnett hire, I think going back in the direction of an offensive mind makes a lot of sense after what they were, I not mean, say what they were able to do, but more like what they were not able to do this year um, in the last season of having Will Rogers. So, I mean, I think, you know, you know, could you have gone out and gotten a Jamie Chadwell, who apparently pulled his name from interest for that job? Maybe, you know, could you have made something a little splashier? Yeah, I think this hire makes a lot of sense for football reasons. Um, And we'll just kind of have to see, you know, it makes the Egg Bowl really interesting with Jeff Levy and Lane Kiffin on the sidelines.
0: You know, as we uh, as as we sit here and record this, just found out that uh, Middle Tennessee State fired their head coach Rick Stockstill, who's been there for the last eighteen seasons. Are you serious? Uh, yeah. He, he, wow. Uh, that that announcement just came uh, as we're recording. So another another name to add to the uh, coaching carousel of changes being made. Uh, I did not realize this after eighteen seasons, just how close he was to uh, five hundred football as a head coach. One hundred thirteen and one eleven. Yeah, um,
1: definition of mediocre for Rick Stockstill's Middle Tennessee State program. If you follow the G5, I mean, they have been in this dance of 500 for a decade now. Um, Surprised they finally made a move, but good for them.
0: um, So we'll see. Uh, We'll add them uh, to our laundry list of of programs and coaches to keep an eye on. Uh, As we talk about new hires, the one we haven't really talked about, and let's get into it right now, let's talk about Texas A&M. There was this whole... I don't know. This felt like Chiano Sunday or what's the other one? Stop the steal uh, for <sighs> Auburn fans. News was leaked. I believe this was Saturday night that Texas A&M was looking at making Mark Stoops the head football coach at Texas A&M replacing Jimbo Fisher. And I, I will tell you the, the outrage from Aggie fans on social media, specifically X, formerly known as Twitter, uh it seemed to put a stop to this. And next thing we know, Mark Stoops is putting out a statement, uh, saying that no decision has been made. But this feels like this feels like fans put a stop to this, and that's probably my biggest beep with this whole situation. Not that the hire that they made in Mike Elko uh was a bad hire. But when are when are we gonna stop letting fanatics determine who we hire? in college athletics
1: yeah this is a mess I think you know a lot of people are making the Shiano uh, comparison and I think there's some differences there but I think there's also obviously a lot of similarities I mean you can clearly see the parallels here and yeah I mean it seems like the fans sort of dictated this higher I mean apparently Mark Stoops was like telling people in Lexington that he was leaving um, you know that se- it seemed like it was all but a done deal on Saturday night um, and then around 1 a.m. he tweets out you know Something along the lines of, you know, I was contacted about an opportunity, but after celebrating this win with the big blue family, I couldn't bear to leave blah, 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 blah. So anyway, he's staying. And I mean, yeah, it sounds like this didn't have final approval and the the blowback from the fan base is sort of what, what killed it. Um, And I mean, yeah, it's a little bit concerning. I would say how much influence, I mean, I think, you know, you want fans, you know, you want to listen to fan opinion to an extent, but Mm -hmm. I mean, at the same time, this is a seventy-six million dollar hire you're making. You paid really more like a hundred million dollars to get rid of the prior staff. I mean, you have to get this one right. So I, I think it doesn't really speak very well to, I guess, the confidence that you know the power brokers have in people like Ross Bjork and that you know that kind of deal to make these decisions. You know, I mean, if if Ross Bjork wanted to hire Mark Stoops. Well, I mean, it shouldn't matter what the, the fan base thinks. You know, the Texan and board shouldn't care about that. And they do. Clearly they do. And, it, and it's a little bit, you know, even more surprising when you look at the hire they ultimately made. You know, I mean, if, if you were mad about the, the Mark Soup's hire because you wanted them to go get Dan Lanning, like, I understand. I also understand that Dan Lanning was never walking through that door. So, I mean, you know, you're going to have to settle a little bit. You're not going to make that kind of splash hire this time around. You know, you look at Mark Stoops, a guy that's been there a long time, has, you know, built a lot of consistency at one of the harder programs in the SEC, you know, a place where football doesn't get the kind of resources that it does at Texas A&M. So I think there's a lot of reason you could like the ceiling with a guy like Mark Stoops. And instead they went and hired Mike Elko, who I think, I mean, they're not the exact same guy, but I think there's a lot of similarities. I think they're both, you know developmental guys. They're both program builders. Um, you know, they both build good staffs. And that's that's, you know, what you're getting in Mike Elko too. A guy that's only sixteen and nine, you know, only coached twenty five games as a head coach. So yeah, I mean, I think that It's a little interesting that, you know, the Stoops hire got killed just to kind of make a hire that feels like Stoops light. You know, I understand that Elko has that familiarity with the program. You know, he he really understands the ins and outs and the politics of the whole deal. And that is valuable at a school like Texas A&M. I don't want to downplay that. But I mean, yeah, this was kind of a debacle and 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 it sort of. I think overshadows what would have otherwise if Elko had just been their first choice the whole time. I think everyone had been like, okay, good hire. But now it kind of looks like you're a mess, you know, operationally. And I don't think anyone at a and wants that.
0: Yeah, no. Uh, well, yeah, I, I didn't understand the blowback on Mark Stoops. Um, you know, I, I saw a lot of people saying, oh, well, nobody would have really cared if, um, uh, if his last name wasn't Stoops, he wouldn't even got an opportunity. But let's not forget that Stoop has, Stoops had more ten win seasons at Kentucky than Jimbo Fisher had uh, at A and M. Uh, so obviously he knows what he's doing. He it seems like he develops pretty well, uh, considering the how the team is perceived and how Kentucky football is perceived. I think, given what he was able to do, I think he did a really good job considering. Uh, only one losing season since 2016, so it's tough for me. But I, you know, I think Elko is a good hire. I mean, he's familiar with A and M, having run the defense. He knows the recruiting grounds. He knows he knows where he needs to go, and I think he'll do well. It's just the perception of this and allowing a fan base, and I, and I find this like funny and ironic that the three instances where I've really seen social media and fan blowback change a um, coaching hire. Has always happened in the SEC.
1: Yeah, and I'm I'm still laughing at stop the steal. That's that's incredible. But yeah, I mean, I, it's nothing against Elko. I think Elko is a really good coach, and I think this will probably work really well. But I just like—is there not going to be fan blowback about this? Like, what's different about Mike Elko than Mark Stoops? Like, what has Mike Elko proven that Mark Stoops hasn't? I mean, at least Mark Stoops has done it in the SEC. Like, I'm just just rhetorical questions here, but I, I just don't really understand the the logic behind the way this played out.
0: Well, we won't know how it's going to play out for several years, but it is something that uh, is interesting, nonetheless, to see this kind of thing uh, go down. But that'll do it for this edition of the College 12 Pack. Now, we'll be back on Wednesday. We're going to get you ready. We got Conference Championship Saturday, Conference Saturday. Ahead of Selection Sunday, we're going to be talking college football playoff scenarios, the Power 5 games, uh, which actually will start on Friday night. I don't know, man. This might be the best conference championship game of the weekend. Uh, Friday night in Las Vegas, Oregon, Washington. Man, I am blown away. Oregon is a a nine-and-a-half-point favorite, as I checked lines early this morning. The fact that they're a a nine-and-a-half-point favorite against Washington, who already beat them by three points. Uh, We'll see if Dan Lanning makes the right decisions this time around uh, as we're playing Washington. But for Tyler, I'm Patrick. We'll see you on Wednesday.